Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. More than 10 years ago, when U.S. oil and gas explorers discovered a way to extract gas from shale rock, investment poured into the key states of Texas, North Dakota, into Montana, and even southern parts of Canada. But when these explorers found a technique to extract oil from the same rock, a revolution occurred. There's a modern-day gold rush going on right now in North Dakota, but this time the hunt is for black gold. It now transformed the outlook for U.S. energy security. The U.S. Geological Survey estimates that up to 4.3 billion barrels of crude can now be extracted from these hills, which sit atop the Bakken Shale Formation. It created hundreds of thousands of high-paying jobs, and it rattled leaders of rival oil-producing countries, including Saudi Arabia. They say there are billions of barrels of oil under these pristine North Dakota wheat fields. But It also triggered a wave of additional investment in loans, as Wall Street and private equity were eager to seize on the boom. One of the features of this uh, revolution was something that couldn't have happened outside the U.S., which was American capitalism allowing mom-and-pop companies to buy some land, drill it, and exploit the oil and gas. This is Behind the Money, a podcast from the Financial Times where we look at the people and money behind the business stories of the moment. I'm Amy Keene. More than 10 years on from the early days of the shale boom and an estimated $400 billion of investment later, U.S. shale companies are facing a looming credit crunch. This episode will look at how this happened and why some bankers say the sector might now be uninvestable. When shale production transformed America's energy supply, it also transformed the world supply. For the first time, America was a serious exporter of oil in global markets. And even with its steady output, the flow of additional oil from the U.S. wasn't enough to offset the supply disruption from other countries, including Libya during the Arab Spring, or Iran facing sanctions because of its nuclear program. And so from 2011 to 2014, world oil prices remained steady at about 100 to $110 a barrel. But that changed. And by October 2014, U.S. production was roaring much faster than expected, with oil companies discovering new ways to boost their output. And that brought oil down. It was hovering around $85 a barrel when OPEC, the oil-producing country's cartel, which includes Saudi Arabia, decided they didn't like the direction prices were headed. In October 2014, I remember sitting in a room in London listening to the Secretary General of OPEC, Abdullah al-Badri. That's U.S. Energy Editor Derek Brower. Abdullah al-Badri believed that simply because oil prices were coming down at those current prices, 85, he believed that half of U.S. oil supply would come offline in the next year. It was just an incredible statement. And so what that meant was that OPEC went into this really crucial meeting in November 2014 with the idea that if they allowed oil prices to drift a bit lower, they could probably do a lot of damage to this upstart across the Atlantic in America. The Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OPEC, has decided to keep things unchanged and not reduce production. 
The decision at a key meeting in Vienna comes despite a huge drop in the price of oil since June. Now, years of high oil prices had made the technically intensive process of extracting oil from shale in the U.S. economically feasible. Officials from OPEC countries thought that if the price of oil dropped a bit more, there would no longer be an economic incentive to produce shale oil. And so famously or infamously, Saudi Arabia and OPEC decided indeed to open the taps at that meeting, or at least to stop cutting, and the oil price plummeted. Wall Street stocks posted their worst weekly loss in more than two years. That's due in large part to the collapse of oil prices. The price of crude fell below $59 a barrel on Friday, a drop of 47 percent since June. And they kept dropping into 2015. Here's the FT's Anjali Raval in December of that year. Oil prices neared December 2008 lows this week as traders saw no sign of an end to a persistent oversupply around the world. Global benchmark Brent crude and the U.S. marker West Texas Intermediate have tumbled since the meeting of OPEC ministers at the start of the month, and both are now hovering around $37 a barrel. It um, reached a, a nadir of about $30 at one stage, and it caused huge suffering for oil-producing countries, including the oil-producing regions of the U.S. Just describe what that looked like back home, so to speak. What you imagine a kind of post-boom collapse to look like in a frontier resource town or something. You know, what you hear about from the Klondike days. Lots of job losses. Take a look at the number of rigs operating right around here in the Bakken region of North Dakota. 207 operating rigs, down to 33. Rigs were idled. Rig crews were sacked. Every time a drilling rig gets idled, about 120 people lose their jobs. Companies cut back on their spending. Biggest and some say the nicest man camp was literally abandoned in a 24-hour period. 1,200 people used to live there. Hotels that had been set up to house these, all these workers that had been there in the boom times shut. Over 1,000 new hotel rooms were built in Dickens in the past 12 years. Now their hotels are at less than 30% occupancy. And so on. It kind of had that kind of air about it, not just in Texas and, and the Barkin, but also up in the oil sands in Canada and, and places like that. But the irony was that actually, in material terms, production from the U.S. went down by about 800,000 barrels a day from the eve of that OPEC meeting to the low point almost two years later. And although people suffered, 800,000 barrels a day of loss wasn't the kind of victory that OPEC had been hoping for. And shale won. Shale won because producers managed to keep drilling during this period of pressure from OPEC. A lot of companies were forced to drill on leaner budgets, and in turn, they became more efficient. But there were several companies that did not survive the squeeze. Well, interestingly, a lot of them went into Chapter 11 and went bankrupt and then started restructuring or sold off assets. You know, the creditors came in and swept up everything that they could. Many of them were like zombie companies. They kept producing oil because they needed to still keep some cash flowing. And actually, that was one of the problems, is that if the problem with the oil price was that there was just too much production, well, what you don't want is people going bankrupt because the oil price is low, but then still producing oil. And some of them were still producing oil. But there were dozens of, I think at the peak, something like you know 60 bankruptcies. But the companies that survived emerged fitter and leaner uh, and more able to withstand future um, turns in the cycle. And those who did remain, mm -hmm. um, what sort of fueled, to use a bad analogy in this context, what kept them going? How were they able to regain some of their footing and strength? 
you know, just such a kind of feature of the oil business is the belief that there's another price gusher just around the corner. Mm. So psychologically, people were prepared for, have always been known that the boom bust thing happens in oil and they just try to ride out the uh, bus until another boom comes along. So that's, that was the kind of mentality that they had. What they did operationally was become way, way, way more efficient, dropping the costs of producing the oil or gas. During the boom period, the companies that supplied the rigs with materials like fracking fluid and sand also thrived. These service companies had sprouted up across the oil-producing states, but eventually there were just too many of them. And so the oil companies could pretty much dictate the price that they wanted to charge. And I heard of stories where companies would say, you know, okay, this is what you were charging last year. We're going to take the same stuff, but we'll pay a third of the price. Mm -hmm. You know, a third. It was an absolute buyer's market from the oil company's point of view in terms of buying the services. So they really drove the cost of doing business in the shale patch down. So it went from sort of 70 bucks that might be needed per barrel uh, to break even to under 50. But even with a cheaper cost of production, the shale companies were spending millions to keep up growth. All along, they've been borrowing heavily from Wall Street and other lenders, uh, creditors, and you know, issuing bonds and, and everything. They'd been going to debt markets, been going to capital markets, been raising equity, everything they could do to get their hands on cash to spend on producing more and more oil and gas they were doing. It was just a cash-intensive operation. Yeah, very, very, because the crucial feature about shale is that it declines very quickly, so it's a bit like a hamster wheel. You produce a lot of oil from one well in year one, and then thereafter the well produces dramatically less. So to keep your production stable, you have to keep drilling. You have to get more and more of these wells online. Oil and gas companies in the Permian Basin in Texas felt this pressure. They told the Dallas Federal Reserve as much. Here's Bank President Robert Kaplan talking to the FT last year about what producers were telling him. And so when I hear, gee, the price of oil is in the 60s and your break-even is 37, you must be making a lot of money. Well, they explained to me, well, not so fast. The decline curve in shale is 70, 80% in year one. So if I'm going to maintain production, I have to keep drilling new wells. And so uh, the PNL impact of continued drilling upon drilling upon drilling upon drilling, it isn't as attractive a PNL as I might have thought, and it takes a lot of cash flow. In the boom times, wells were costing to up towards you know, $10 million per well. But if you're drilling dozens and dozens and dozens of wells, you need lots of money. There's an estimate out there from Reset Energy that in between 2008 and 2018, so those 10 years, the shale companies been burnt through about $400 billion of cash. Wow. And they hardly returned any of it to the shareholders. So um, that's why the, the sector is suddenly or has become somewhat unpopular with investors, to use an English understatement. Investors just simply haven't seen the return that you'd expect if you'd been lending $400 billion to a sector. You can get a sense of how this money was spent and how investors reacted through the story of one company, Chesapeake Energy. Tell me about Chesapeake. Well, Chesapeake were one of the leaders of the shale gas story, you know, the darling of the sector for a while. It was founded by an Oklahoman called Aubrey McClendon and a friend called Tom Ward in the, I think, the late 80s. And they spent the 90s just believing in this big gas story that there was tons of gas there to be exploited and America needed it. 
Here's Mr. McClendon in an interview. Five years ago, there was a feeling that we had to have access to new areas because everything was worn out in the U.S. But my eyes, brain, head were all turned by the discovery of the Barnett Shale. And the way I kind of think about it is shale is the kitchen of the oil and gas industry. And you can find a lot more food in the kitchen than you can in the dining room. Provided we can find the right rocks and, and use the right techniques, we get out. And they were right because that's what happened. And so we've moved from this perpetual state of uh, scarcity um, to now this new state of uh, abundance that I think we'll be in for decades and decades. To imagine that you never have to do, make any other discoveries and you've got 100 years of any resource is just extraordinary. At the peak, they were worth about $35 billion. That was their market cap. And Aubrey McClendon was the best paid CEO in America. So it's something like $100 million a year. And then things started to go wrong. They bought up so much acreage. There were incentives for senior management, um, I'm being delicate here, to keep drilling many, many wells. McClendon, he's front page material now for papers like the Wall Street Journal. Thanks to his perks, which include more than a billion dollars in loans. Loans used to give McClendon a personal financial stake in every well Chesapeake drills. And the company drills a heck of a lot of wells. 2,000 every year. Even when it made no economic sense to keep drilling these wells, it made a lot of sense for the senior management that these wells be drilled. Mm -hmm. And then there were tons of poor governance matters that emerged. And, you know, it turned out he was flying his family around in the you know, corporate jets. More than 13,000 Americans work for McClendon, enjoying perks which, according to Reuters, include on-site Botox treatments. He saw himself as one of these, you know, great oil magnates who would leave his mark on American history and he did and Chesapeake certainly did and Chesapeake as I said was one of these leaders of the shale revolution but it turns out that for all it's done to transform a lot in America and America's geopolitical position and so on now the company's worth less than a billion dollars in terms of market cap and it has huge debts and it's nobody really wants to invest in it and it's one of these companies that is uh, owes so much money and it's the, the bonds are maturing soon. It's sub-investment grade. $800 million is nothing for a company that was one of the titans of the shale gas sector. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a truly a story of hubris and expansion, over-expansion, never believing that the commodity price would fall, taking huge risks. And while not all of the companies from the shale revolution had the same corporate governance issues, many are dealing with similar financial pressure. They spent years amassing debt to keep up with growth, and now a significant portion of that debt is about to come due. A recent report from rating agency Moody's said that more than 60 percent of the sector's debt that's due to be repaid between now and 2024 is speculative, or sub-investment grade. It's about $52 billion worth. Now that oil prices are hovering around $50 a barrel amid the fallout of the coronavirus, and while there's significant global supply, producers are going to have a tough time raising more money to keep their cash flow intact. A lot of investors that I've spoken to are really, really keen to convey to the people they've lent all their money to, stop producing so much, stop going for growth, start paying back some of your money, start mm -hmm. issuing dividends, start focusing on free cash flow, start operating like companies in other sectors have to operate if they want people to invest in them. Uh, for too long, the oil and gas sectors just looked at the commodity as, as the ultimate endgame, more and more of the commodity, 
well, the people who've lent money to these companies want them to look at the end game being mm-hmm. paying back debt, mm-hmm. rewarding their shareholders. So as the incentive for producers starts to move away from producing in the direction of trying to turn profits, investor interest in U.S. energy more broadly has also shifted. Here's Robert Kaplan again. Oil and gas companies, which used to be just incentivized, drill, 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 production, production, production. Now, all of a sudden, the capital providers are saying, no, we don't want you to uh, grow production. We want to focus on profitability. The mood is grim. I've spent the past 18 months touring around a lot of hedge funds and institutional investors in general. And those that hold stock in shale, private equity people, they just feel like they, you know, it's an albatross that they're not going to touch again. It's really visible in the share price. If you compare the sector's performance, especially versus the S&P 500, Bank of America recently put out some really interesting research that showed that the U.S. energy sector is now underperforming the S&P 500 by the biggest margin since Pearl Harbor in 1941. That's how badly the investors see the prospects for this sector. Derek says this drop is owed to three main factors. It's really a product of the falling commodity price. That's one thing. The companies that don't have any real plan for environmental policy that's coming at them eventually are losing favor as well. And then fundamentally just the economics of the shale business, which is that it requires a lot of capital continually to be invested just to keep the production standing still, let alone grow it. And not many of these companies are able to generate enough cash to pay back shareholders. So um, if we're sort of approaching a potential credit crunch in this corner of the Mm -hmm. industry, who's going to feel it the most? Going from 1.5, 1.6, 1.9 million barrels a day of growth in production to, let's say, 300,000 barrels a day of growth this year, which is what some of the analysts are forecasting. In those oil-producing regions, that will feel like a recession because there will be less demand for all those fracking crews and and the secondary and tertiary effects of that on hotels, on restaurants, you know, all that kind of stuff will will take hold. There'll be lots of job losses. It's already starting to happen. The impact on companies, I think, will be less availability of credit. Robert Kaplan, again. The lesson that was painfully learned in 2014 and 15 and some of 16 this is a cyclical industry, but you'll be able to be there in the good times and the bad. But if you're over leveraged, you're going to go out of business. And this is one industry where a number of firms that failed in the downturn because they had too much debt. There will be some more consolidation in the sector. There has to be. And that, in turn, will make the shale patch a bit more efficient again because any good acreage that can't be managed properly by a struggling company will be bought by a company that can do it, the same process that's been happening over time in the shale patch will continue, which is that it's gone from being these wildcatters and small mom-and-pop companies to the bigger, large, and you know, independent, multi-billion-dollar market cap companies, and then to the ExxonMobil's and Chevron's, mm-hmm. who are much more resilient in the face of oil price fluctuations because they have a global business, and the um, balance sheet to support exactly. any kind yeah, of debt. Or exactly. not any kind of debt, but the debt needed yeah. to fund this. Yeah, they can go through pretty much any dip in, in the commodity price and keep drilling. So it seems fair to say that uh, U.S. shale has matured. The industry has matured, or at least it's undergoing a period of maturing as investors start to ask 
some questions about when they're going to see profits and more sustainable businesses. Um, but I guess that brings me to the question of what this might mean for the role of the U.S. as an energy producer and an exporter. I mean, the, the achievements of the, the shale boom or the revolution, whatever you want to call it, have happened. So when we say that the shale sector is struggling or that uh, production may slow, it doesn't mean that the U.S. is suddenly going to become as import dependent as it was in the past. That has changed completely. The U.S. has gone from being hugely dependent on OPEC countries and Canada and Mexico to supply it with oil to being a country that exports oil to mm-hmm. countries like China. Mm-hmm. The U.S. is now the world's biggest oil and gas producer, and that mm-hmm. is a huge, huge transformation with massive consequences around the world. And that's not going to change even if a bunch of these companies go bust. I think one of the really interesting things that for uh, um, the U.S. shale industry is how do you judge success? And if you judge success in geopolitical terms or political terms, then it's been incredibly successful. Whether you love or hate oil or gas, the story of shale is absolutely incredible. What, is the, what has happened with these rocks and, and what it has meant for America's place in the world. But if you judge success by paying money back to people who lend you cash, the jury's still out in the sector yeah, in a big kidding. way. Thank you, Derek. You can read more from Derek and the rest of our oil and gas reporting team at FT.com. I've linked to a few stories to get you started in the show notes for this episode. We got some really great emails from you after our last episode. Story ideas, notes of excitement about the new season, and one plea about how we report share price changes, which was duly noted. Please keep those emails coming. You can drop us a line at BehindTheMoney at FT.com. If you have any further thoughts on this episode or about stories that you think we should cover in a future episode, we'd love to hear from you. And as always, if you're listening on Apple, please rate and review the show as it does help others find out about us. This episode was produced by Oluwakemi Aladisui and me, Amy Keene. We'll be back with a new episode in a couple of weeks. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.